One of the big moral dilemmas in Australian culture is how to repay a favour. A friend helps you. You need to apologise for something. Uh, you don't want to be in their debt. You owe them, but, but you can't pay them money. Uh, they're a mate. They'd be offended. Uh, but you can't do nothing. That, that wouldn't be fair or right. It wouldn't be Australian. So the solution for many people is to give a bottle of wine or a six-pack of beer. Something that's appreciated, but it doesn't count as payment. It's an expression of gratitude. I don't know if you remember, a number of years ago, there was a series of ads for Tui's New Beer. They bragged that Tui's New was the official currency of the beer economy. Apparently, beer is the solution to the problem of what you owe people. Uh, what do you owe a mate who helps you move? Well, that's worth a case of Tui's New. But what do you owe a mate who helps you move a grand piano up four flights of stairs? Well... That's six cases of two is new. It's the currency of the beer economy. Now, in a way, this is the question that this section of Romans is asking. What do you owe various groups of people? First, what do you owe people who treat you badly? Then, what do you owe the government? And then the third section considers the debt that you owe everyone, the debt of love. Uh, but before we jump in, I just want to highlight that, that key verse, the one that we looked at for the kids' talk, that says this, uh, one, uh, chapter 13, verse 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, in other words, on the one hand, pay everyone what you owe. Don't leave a debt unpaid. Accept the debt to love one another. You will always have a debt to love one another. You can never pay it off. Now, that's slightly puzzling, isn't it? How can I owe a debt of love to everybody, even people who don't know me? How can I owe them something? Unless, of course, the debt that I owe is to someone else, which I think it is in this case. It's a debt that I owe to God, to God who loved me first, who gave his only son to save me and then to make me his own and then who commands me to love my neighbour. I owe God a debt I can never repay. And one of the ways he commands me to respond to that debt is to love others. Now, we've already seen it, haven't we? Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, that, that key introduction to this section. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We don't love others to make God love us, but because he loves us. Everything I'm going to say from here on in applies to Christians. For those God loves through Jesus. So if you're not yet a Christian, please stay and listen. I'm not asking you to leave. Please stay and listen. But in a sense, you're listening in as an outsider. You're listening as an outsider. Because until you know the love and the grace and the mercy of God who forgives your sin because of the death of Jesus in your place, then there's no command from him to love others. Now, it's a great thing to do. I'm not saying don't love people. It makes the world a better place. But there's no debt that you owe that you're responding to. 
So that's the foundation laid. We owe a debt of love because of the love that's been shown us. So let's look at the first situation. What do you owe people who treat you badly? From chapter 12, verse 17. A current affair today, tonight, they'll sometimes run a story about a neighbourhood squabble gone bad. Perhaps you've seen them. Uh, Bill grabs a a few lemons from over Bob's fence. Uh, But then Bob trims a branch from Bill's tree. Uh, And then Bill knocks down Bob's letterbox. And so it goes on, escalating and escalating. And by the time the camera crew arrives, it's World War III in suburban streets. All because Bill and Bob insist on getting even with one another, handing out their own justice. Now, I'm sure you've experienced the same temptation. You may never have done anything about it, but I'm sure you've thought it. Last year, there was a loud party in the backyard of the house behind us. The music was so loud, our windows rattled. Phone calls to the police had no effect. Five minutes after the visit, the music would would be booming again. We moved to the other side of the house. We put earplugs in. We didn't get much sleep. Uh, Bright and early Sunday morning, everything was quiet, reasonably, comparatively so, over the back fence. I was getting ready for church. I was awake. What did I feel like doing? Getting even. Driving past the house, blasting my horn, turning my music up loud, mowing the lawn. Now that'd show them, that'd teach them a lesson. I didn't. I felt like it, which is just as bad almost. But here God is saying, verse 17, don't get even. Don't repay evil for evil, but instead be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. Now it seems simple enough, doesn't it? But as most of us know, it's sometimes not that simple. Firstly because it's just so unnatural to let it go, isn't it? We just have this inbuilt desire to want to get even. But second, even if we do manage to let it go, there's no guarantee that it's going to make any difference. Sometimes our good behaviour does nothing at all to change the other person's bad behaviour. Sometimes a gracious response is simply met with more bad treatment. And so notice what Paul adds as a piece of realistic advice in verse 18. If it's possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Peace is the goal, it's the ideal, but genuine peace is a two-way street. Sometimes it may not be possible to fix a relationship. Sometimes the injustice that's coming towards you just continues no matter what you do. But notice that doesn't mean we get a free pass. We still have to work hard to live at peace. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, that means to do everything within your uh, ability to be the peacemaker. It means to be long-suffering, to overlook, to bless those who curse, to love your enemies. Now that's sort of possible and it may or may not work for people over the back fence, but Here's where it gets difficult. In church. Living at peace doesn't just mean an absence of hostility. Living at peace means a restored relationship. 
And when it comes to church, can I just say from my observation, we're sometimes not so good at this bit. Most of the time when there are disagreements between Christians, there's not open warfare. It's more like guerrilla warfare. There are hidden battles. People just bottle up the issues. They pretend everything's all right. There's no yelling and screaming. After all, Christians don't behave like that. There's just a refusal to address the situation. There's superficial conversation. There's greetings through gritted teeth and forced smiles. We move to the other side of the room. There's unresolved tension. It's not open hostility, but it's still a broken relationship. Is that acceptable? Is that what it means to live at peace? I don't think so. Where's the speaking the truth in love? Where's the goal of repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation? God is commanding you, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now that's describing effort and courage and creativity and humility and perseverance. Be a bridge builder. Make the first move. It'll probably be a difficult conversation. It may, be, may involve swallowing your pride, apologising for your part. It may involve finding a brave third person uh, to involve, be involved in mediating. But that's what we're called to do. Live at peace with everybody. Do what's right to everybody. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't take revenge. You never owe anyone vengeance. Well, that's the first lesson. It's a simple lesson. It's easy to understand, but it's hard to learn, isn't it? And so Paul gives us some hints to help, some strategies to make it easier. The first strategy is to remember what we've been forgiven. To remember what we've been forgiven. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins, In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. When we remember what we've been forgiven, what we deserve but what we receive instead, how can we judge others? How can we decide that their sin deserves punishment from me but mine doesn't? Recognising our own sin, the grace that's been shown us, makes it easier to accept others, to show them grace. The second hint there is uh, in verse 19. We can leave the revenge up to God. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, we don't have to do God's job for him. God sees it. He hasn't forgotten you. He knows what that person's done. He's all-powerful, he's perfectly just, and he loves you. You can leave the justice up to him. He'll do a much better job than you will. To turn the other cheek, it's actually a display of strength, not weakness. To turn the other cheek is evidence that you trust God the God who's promised to bring justice. It's a faith commitment uh, to not seek revenge. Do you trust God enough to leave it up to him? 
Well, the third hint Paul gives is there in verse 20. Uh, You can treat uh, the bad behaviour towards you as an opportunity for evangelism uh, rather than taking revenge. That's the way I take verse 20. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, the first part of that verse, I think, is easy enough to understand. You repay an enemy by helping. Uh, The second part's a little trickier. You'll heap burning coals on his head. There's a few different possibilities. Uh, It's a quote from Proverbs 25, and I think the best way to understand it is that your gracious behaviour will cause the enemy to be ashamed and remorseful of his his own behaviour, and that the heaping burning coals uh, is a sign of his repentance and his remorse. Which I, I think sort of works, uh, can sometimes work in, in practical situations. Uh, when we return like for like, it may make us feel better, but it hardly ever will change the attitude of the other person, will it? If we return them with bad behaviour, it's not going to lead them to repentance. I mean, there's no guarantee that beha- treating them well will either, uh, but uh, we've got this. Uh, this proverb here that says if we return good for bad, uh, it may lead them to remorse and repentance. Uh, we've got a photo. If we, sorry, Hugo, can you just put that next slide up? We've got a, uh, let me give you an example of how this behaviour works itself out. Uh, this guy, his name is Prem uh, Pradhan. He was a Nepalese Christian who was converted in 1951 in India where he served with the Indian Army. Uh, He returned to uh, Nepal and he was almost certainly the first modern Nepalese convert. Uh, He began evangelising. No other Christians in the country, even though it was illegal to uh, change a religion, and it took two years before he saw his first convert, a woman he healed of paralysis. Uh, In 1962, some believers he'd evangelised, discipled and baptised were arrested and sentenced to a year in prison. Uh, He was sentenced to six years for baptising them. Uh, Nepalese prisons were terrible. Many died of cold and sickness and malnutrition. But he used his time in prison to evangelise the other prisoners, many of whom were converted. And when they were released, uh, they returned to their districts. Uh, When the prisoners were released, the the guards decided to finish off Prem. He was placed in a tiny cell that was used to store dead bodies. His hands and feet were chained. The cell was so small he couldn't stand up or lie down straight. He was in that cell for three months. A new guard started and one day the guard heard Prem praying. Who are you talking to? The guard said, there's nobody there. Jesus, Prem replied. How did he get in there? I didn't let anybody in, the guard said. Well, he's here. The guard opened the door, shone his flashlight around. I don't see Jesus. You won't find him that way, Prem said. Let me show you how you can find him. The guard stayed. Prem led him to the Lord. Uh, Not long after, he was released from solitary confinement. That's one story from uh, 15 years Uh, 1960 to 1975, Prem spent 10 of those 15 years in 14 different prisons. Uh, He won uh, to the Lord and discipled men from 12 different Nepalese tribes. 
who returned to their areas and the gospel spread through uh, Nepal. Now, that probably won't be your experience of uh, being persecuted. But still, your grace under fire can be an effective witness in where God's placed you. Choosing not to take revenge can be powerful. Your boss gives credit to someone else or or perhaps blames you for something that someone else did. Uh, Someone pushes in in front of you. Your neighbour's inconsiderate and thoughtless. Uh, You're ridiculed for your Christian views. People notice uh, the way you respond with grace and it can have a powerful effect. Well, the fourth hint is uh, moving into chapter 13. Uh, Leave the justice up to the authorities. I think that's Paul's connection of the logic. Don't take revenge. Instead, uh, use the God-appointed authorities. God has placed governments in charge. They are his earthly instruments to do good or to bring justice against those who do evil. So you don't have to do it yourself. Let's see what he says halfway through verse 1. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And I think his point is, so you don't have to. Now in this life, God mostly uses governments to bring justice. In the life to come, he will look after the justice himself and bring ultimate judgment And so both of those things are reasons why we don't need to seek personal vengeance, but we can leave it up to God's instruments. Now, sure, Paul is speaking in a general sense, and there are exceptions, but I think it's still true across most ages and across most cultures, people can let go of revenge because governments are God's agents for justice. And so Paul moves on then to uh, consider the question of what we owe governments. Uh, To those who harm us, we don't owe revenge, but to governments we do owe submission because they're God's agents. Uh, From verse 3 he continues, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right and he will commend you. He is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he doesn't bring the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And then here's the principle. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities. God's servants established by God to do good and to bring punishment. So therefore, submit. Now, it's a simple, uh, general uh, command, uh, message. And we can give thanks that uh, in Australia, that's a fairly easy thing to do. Uh, We may not agree with everything our government does at times, but uh, it's a fairly easy thing to submit to authorities. It becomes more difficult in a place like uh, Nepal. Although Paul says we're to obey the authorities, to pay them our submission, our first submission is to God. Uh, We're to keep the the laws of the government right up to that line to the point where to do so would be to disobey God. Uh, Now there's other places in the Bible that consider it. Paul doesn't address that question here. 
Uh, but at some point, we may be forced to disobey authorities. Perhaps you can think of some biblical examples. Uh, Exodus chapter 1, the Israelite uh, midwives refused to kill their baby boys on Pharaoh's orders. Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down to the idol of, Nebuch- of King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 6, Daniel in a positive way continued to pray despite it being illegal. Acts chapter 4, Peter was commanded by the Sanhedrin not to preach about Jesus. <laughs> and he said, judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey man or to obey God. We're going to keep preaching. And then you've got this example here of Prem Pradhan, who refused to stop evangelising in Nepal, even though it was illegal and was jailed for it. Uh, Recently, some Christians feel like uh, the New South Wales government crossed a line when it said we couldn't meet for church because of COVID restrictions. Uh, Some Christians have felt that church leaders have shown a lack of courage by not breaking the law and uh, holding church services. Uh, As a session, uh, our elders felt that the government still had given us plenty of ways that we could still worship God together and encourage one another and that we didn't need to disobey uh, government legislation to obey God. Uh, but Paul's command is that unless you're, f- unless you're forced to disobey God, you owe the government a debt of submission and obedience. If you owe taxes, pay them. If you owe respect, pay it. If you owe honour, then honour. That's the authorities. Let's move on to verse 8. Pay your debts, Paul says, a, a general sort of summary. And then in verse 8 he says, including this ongoing debt to love one another. Now that's a debt you can never pay off. A friend helps you move, you can pay that off with a case of beer, and you're even. But for a Christian, we can never say that. We can never say we're even. There is always a responsibility to keep paying out love because Jesus gave his life for us. You can't pay that off. You think a 30-year mortgage has an extended repayment plan. Well, that's nothing compared to the Christian's repayment plan to love one another. That's a lifetime. But luckily the interest rate never goes up so it's alright. We can never sit back and say ah, the job's done. How are we going as a church at paying that debt off? As we show love to one another in practical, long-suffering, ongoing, sacrificial ways. Or are we just content to talk about love, to say we're a loving church, to rest on our laurels, to consider the debt paid? Maybe we need a little incentive. Paul seems to think the Roman Christians are asleep on the job. They need a bit of a wake-up call. If he could write in caps, you know, I think he would have written these, verse 11, in caps. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Our salvation's nearer now than when we first believed. The night's nearly over, the day's almost here. Let's put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Now's not the time to snooze. Now's not the time to talk about love. 
Now's not the time to talk, to behave like the rest of the world. We are living in the last days now. The days of the bright sunshine of the gospel of Jesus and his salvation and his law of love. They're the days we're living in. He's coming back. Let's make sure that when he does, he'll find us paying our debts. And in particular, the debt to love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a fairly simple truth as we've seen uh, the last couple of weeks, but it's one that can be so difficult for us to, uh, to put into practice uh, consistently. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us to appreciate, to know the height and the depth and the width of the love that you have for us in the Lord Jesus and that this would overflow into our love for one another for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.